0: So, good evening, everyone. I just want to first acknowledge um, just how uh, much awe and respect I have for all of you in terms of your practice and your diligence this past week thus far. So, uh, as Virginia says, keep going. So the title of this talk is, Here Comes the Judge, Here Comes the Judge, The Dharma of the Judging and Comparing Mind. What I'm aware of in this moment is, uh, I actually felt pretty good about a minute ago. (laughs) Impermanence. (laughs) Noticing my heart beating really fast and sort of tingling in my hands and fingers are shaking a little bit. Telling my little five-year-old who got a needs improvement in show and tell that it's actually going to be okay. So I just want to begin, at least to help me relax a little bit, with a song. Dashing through this life, towards some unreal goal. Tired, filled with strife, nothing fills our bowl. Wondering what it's for, this striving to succeed. Sitting is a bore, so this is what you need Oh, mindful bells, mindful bells, reminders to be kind Remembering to laugh and sing is what to keep in mind Mindful bells, mindful bells, help us to wake up To love ourselves with all our hearts is sometimes a bit tough Practicing is hard. To sit with all that comes, watching without guard. Stories and where they're from. Trusting in my truth, knowing that I'm wise. Discerning what is underneath that ego-filled disguise. Oops, sorry. Skies. Oh, put it back. Thank (laughs) you. Please. (laughs) Mindful bells, mindful bells, reminders to be kind. Remembering to laugh and sing is what. I can't remember what that chord is. What to keep in mind. Mindful bells, mindful bells, help us to wake up. To love ourselves with all our hearts is sometimes a bit tough. We all love each other so much. and just want to support each other in the best way possible. Just so I appreciate that. And I just want to give you lots of fodder to judge, you know, in terms of like, you know, notice like, you know, I don't have the best voice and I learned how to play the ukulele on YouTube by myself. And, you know, there's this this part of me that um, can feel like, ah, this is just silly and stupid and... What has helped me move through a lot of judgment that I can create and what other people think about me and what I do is, um, I'm just showing up. And uh, you know, teaching for me is not a joy or a passion. It's actually a practice of moving through my fear and my judgment and my uh, doubts and insecurities about myself. So um, I just want to offer um, deep bows of gratitude to those of you who courageously participated in my informal survey out there last night and this morning around the question of you know what judgments do you have of yourself and of others? So I'd like to offer a, a meditation on what was offered and There was a lot of them, and I I, I picked a few, and I think they were very similar themes throughout. And so I'd like to um, invite you to notice how, in hearing these judgments and comparisons, how it impacts your body, heart, and mind. And as you listen, which of these judgments and comparisons resonate with you? And if it resonates and you feel comfortable, snap your fingers so we can get a sense of how many others share that same judgment or comparison. So just allowing your eyes to close, that's comfortable for you, and just grounding in your feet and seat. This is what's present in our sangha. I'll play perceived mistakes over and over again in my head. It doesn't do me any good, and yet I can't help it, or so I feel. I judge myself when my heart is closed and I'm not giving, when I'm not centered. I judge myself because I take myself too seriously and take things too personally. I judge myself for not being able to meet my own emotional needs and be perfectly calm and easy for others. I judge myself for not being able to perfectly control my emotions. I judge myself to freq- too frequently have good intentions, but my expectations and standards make it impossible for me to feel truly good about myself or feel that I've done the right thing. I get excited, setting ambitious goals, trying to live radically for others. But when the timeline or outcome does not meet my expectations, I beat myself up. I'll never be good enough for others to love me. I judge the way I look, the way I speak, the way I think. It's always just out of my grasp, pleasing others and most importantly, myself. For being too vocal about my opinions and too direct and then conversely not speaking up when I should or could have. Why did I act that way? Ugh, you stupid girl. You shouldn't do that ever again. You know, I think it'd be better if you just shut up. You're so ugly and you make it worse by wearing what you wear and basically everything you do. I constantly compare myself to others, I create my own conceptions in my head to see if I can practice longer than other people after chanting. <laughs> I know it's not a healthy outlook and it frustrates me that I think this way when I really should only be concerned about myself. I judge myself negatively, I tell myself I should have done more, tried harder, even if I give my every last drop of effort, I never allow myself to feel as if it was enough. I wasted my potential. It's hard to take pride in my progress when I have such high, a high bar for when I want, I want to get to. I judge myself for my anxiety and all that comes with it, for not feeling smart enough even though I went to top schools, have worked in top companies, it's the imposter syndrome. I judge myself mainly in how effectively I project an image of admirability and desirability. I want to be desired, and if failing that, admired, I grew up in a household that excessively valued excellence, specifically excelling beyond others, and thus my judgments revolve around if I'm accomplishing that goal. That also means I do a lot of comparing. Often, have the immediate reaction, you idiot, when messing up or making mistakes. I can then reassure that I'm okay, but the initial thought still arises on autopilot. A couple of breaths here and just being aware of what's present as you hear these judgments about ourselves. So noticing how many other people resonated you wrote that particular judgment or comparison. So now how we judge others I'm starting to catch how often I judge others, the way someone walks, practices, takes food, eats food, how long they practice, the facial expressions they make, (laughs) etc. Very observant person. (laughs) I realize these are all probably insecurities of my own that I'm projecting. My more heightened sensitivity to these thoughts is making me much more aware of the work that needs to be done. I judge others primarily, but not exclusively in one of three ways. (laughs) Number one, I'm attracted to them. They get the benefit of the doubt and are judged the least harshly. (laughs) I'm not attracted to them, and I consider them more attractive than me. They are the competition and get my scorn and ire. Anything they do is wrong, is judged harshly and with glee. Number three, I'm not attracted to them, but they do the things that I'm embarrassed, ashamed about in myself. Woe be unto those who fall into this category. I will never let my anger out, of, out on them consciously or in my actions but they inspire consistent anger in me and get no slack. And unlike the competition, that judgment is not gleeful. When my needs are not met with my partner, words of affirmations, intimacy, playfulness, I I compare that person with others and have difficulty just accepting who he or she is. When I don't feel acceptance and love radiating from other people, I judge their heart. When a person doesn't seem to feel my emotions when I've shared deep traumas or when the person doesn't know how to show them. When I see people judging other people. I intellectualize for myself that all uh, all I want is for others to be happy and to be at their best, but I know I'm carrying around a great deal of resentment for all the people I perceive as having it easier than me. I judge others by neediness versus pushing away. I'll hold someone in higher regard if they don't appear to need something. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty needy myself. I generally don't think people are authentic. I see that as a judgment that gets in the way of making a connection with others and ultimately getting to know them more authentically. I secretly judge others quite harshly, even my closest friends. I notice that I tend to assume others have the worst intentions and that they understand fully what their actions cause. After lots of therapy and meditation, I intellectually know that my judgments of others are simply projections of my insecurities, but knowing versus dealing with the feelings are different and difficult. I judge others by expecting them to act or feel the same way I do in any situation. I judge others by their amount of effort and what I determine should be the amount of effort they give. I have a hard time recognizing everyone's different paths and that their 100% does not equal my 100%. I also judge worth based on appearance. And lastly, these hippies are full of shit. Vinny said he wrote that one. (laughs) All right, so just coming back and just noticing how it felt to hear about judgments of others. We're all, in a way, doing this, judging ourselves, judging others. What do we tend to do when we judge or compare? Do we really believe the judgment or comparison? Does it then take a life of its own? Do we ever bring mindfulness to the judgment or comparison? Do we take the time and space to notice how it feels in our bodies? How does judgment and comparison impact our emotions? how do they influence our thoughts and thereby our speech and actions. From Do Zantamata. It's easy to judge. It's more difficult to understand. My understanding requires compassion, patience, and a willingness to believe that good hearts sometimes choose poor, poor methods. Through judging, we separate Through understanding, we grow. My dear Dharma colleague and friend, uh, Kate Johnson, shared with me this practice that a friend of hers does with her children whenever they judge other people. She asks them to think of three things that may have caused that person to behave that way. So yes, these may be stories, yet they allow us to pause and to give benefit of the doubt, and may even open our hearts towards compassion rather than close them through judgment. It's like somebody like speeding in front of us on the highway, just about to hit our car, and you know, what's the first thing we we do? You know, either give them the finger or yell at them or. Now when that happens to me, I can take like just a moment and acknowledge, wow, I just got really scared, you know, and then maybe just imagine like, you know, is this person like heading to the hospital, you know, because their partner's having a baby or heading home because their parent is dying, you know, we just don't know, don't know. I often tell the teenagers that I teach, you know, if you're going to bother telling yourself a story, tell yourself a good one. From the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, we are what we think, with our thoughts we make the world. Like one of the most powerful statements, you know, that I actually have hanging on the wall next to my desk. As we've said, you know, throughout this retreat, The nature of mind is to generate thoughts. And on this retreat is this rare and precious gift that we give ourselves to actually pay attention to what it is that we're thinking. You're probably finding that more often than not, the thoughts that come through our minds aren't very helpful or useful and can often cause suffering. I tend to think that... um, the human condition is almost to defer to the negative. And it's through this practice of waking up that we can sort of retrain our minds to think otherwise. So on this path of awakening, the jig is up. You know? We are aware that we are aware that we're being aware. So you gotta be careful for what you ask for after being here for the last few days, do you ever wish that um, you, got, you could get your money back and just go on and believe that ignorance is bliss? <laughs> 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 <clears throat> I know that I have at times. There's this way that um, we develop this like loyalty to suffering you know, because it actually feels really familiar And there's a certain level of comfort in familiarity. I have another song about that. (laughs) Don't take my pain away from me. Let me live my life in misery. Cause if it goes, then I'll be blue, cause waking up is hard to do. I love it when my mind is tight, and it keeps me up through the night. Come on Buddha, it's just you cause waking up is hard to do They say that waking up is hard to do Why just one arrow when there can be two? Don't say my suffering can end. Instead of waking up, I want to be a couch potato again. Yes. I beg of you, just let me cry. Wise effort, I don't want to try. Come on, Buddha, get a clue. Because waking up is hard to do. I love the spontaneous doo-wop band. <laughs> you know, i I'd sing a lot of these songs, and, and um, you know, and they're from like the 1950s. That is like your grandparents, or even beyond that, um, because most of the retreats that I have taught, you know, are for like um, folks from their 60s and up, and this is the music that they love. <laughs> so. Um, So I notice that I I constantly judge myself and others and situations all the time. And when I can really pay attention, I notice that it creates like this tightness in my body, a clenching, this disconnection in my heart, and this feeling of separation, ultimately feeling suffering. So in fairness and transparency, let me share my own judgments and comparisons that I've been harboring while on this retreat. The temple is beyond wise, funny, and adorable. (laughs) On top of being a straight, cis, white man. So not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Vinny's way too cool and with major dharmic swagger. More than anyone should be allowed to have. I don't even have a tattoo. (laughs) Pam is a strong and powerful force of nature whose very presence commands a room. Marcy is like Master Shifu in Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could have Dawn's charisma and clarity. Rachel's brilliance, wittiness, and creativity are incomparable. Everyone's getting notes but me. The yogis must think I'm not a good enough teacher. Or maybe my teaching is so clear there's no need for notes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't deserve to be up here. I haven't been on as many long retreats as these colleagues. I tend to be a bad-weather meditator. They only want me because how many immigrant, non-binary teachers of color are there? <laughs> I economize diversity and inclusion. <laughs> ...from the Buddha. I don't envision a single thing that when unguarded, leads to such great harm as the mind. The mind, when unguarded, leads to great harm. So many of us are so used to suffering that we feel like that's actually the baseline of our existence. And that we forget that there's another way to be, which is free. My teacher Tara Brock often calls it being caught in the trance. From Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response there is a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So that's what we're doing here, is we're actually creating that space to be able to choose. And I think that's where we forget, is that we actually have choice we don't have to be run by our, li- by our minds, in particular, that we can discern what's helpful and what's not. When I catch myself in judgment or comparison, I ask myself these four things. Does my heart feel open or closed? Do I feel connected or disconnected? Do I feel free or am I suffering? And am I feeling empowered or am I feeling disempowered? So if my heart is closed, I'm feeling disconnected, I'm suffering, and I'm feeling disempowered. And it means I need to think, to really reflect on like, how am I thinking about life and myself? And I also ask myself, if I couldn't blame or judge anybody else, what would I actually have to feel? For me, judgment and comparison became a defense mechanism for my feelings of doubt, insecurity, and fear, and often informed how I showed up in the world. Letting go of believing thoughts that didn't serve was what would set me free, at least temporarily, because those thoughts would often come back. Another song. (laughs) Up in our minds, we think lots of things. Some inspiring, some that sting. Believing the stories we know so well. The ones that cause suffering and make it hell Oh no, no, just let it go Oh no, no, just let it go Up in our minds we think lots of things Some inspiring and some that sting It lives in our bodies, hearts and minds Through the practice of being kind Having compassion is pure and whole Dispelling harm is part of the goal Oh, no, no, just let it go Oh, no, no, just let it go Up in our minds we think lots of things Some inspiring and some that sting When we remember we are just good Get rid of the words can't and should Accepting what is is the thing that's hard Life is not a hallmark card Oh no, no, just let it go Oh no, no, just let it go Up in our minds we think lots of things Some inspiring and some that sting If anything, songs kill a little time. (laughs) Keep clapping, I have another half hour. Uh (laughs) So I just want to share this um, reading from uh, Spirit Rock teacher Philip Moffat around um, judging, comparing, and fixing mind. I thought it's just really powerful, just the way it's, it's written. So if you could just bear with me. There's a lot of wonderful nuggets in it. How we meet each moment of life determines our well-being. But when we are caught in judging, comparing, or fixing, our worldview contracts, and we have fewer options for responding to the present moment. Identifying how we relate to the world, whether we tend to judge, compare, or fix, will help free us from our compulsive behaviors which cause us and others suffering. Of these three, judging, comparing, and fixing, which do you tend to do most often? Judging types have very strong opinions about themselves and the world around them, about what's wrong and right and how it should be. You might be very judgmental of yourself, but not of the world or vice versa. It's quite common for the voice of judgment in your head to not be your own, but someone's from your past, like a parent or teacher. Sometimes this voice of judgment doesn't even reflect your current values. Comparing types continually measure themselves against others. I'm not as fit as so-and-so or how they used to be. I used to be able to run a marathon, but now I can't. Fixing types notice what needs to be fixed, but not in a judgmental way, and then want to fix it. They derive reassurance from thinking, I can fix this. Sometimes they will, although unasked, try to fix others or situations which, depending on the circumstances, can be obtrusive. Most of us have characteristics of all these three types but we tend to have a predilection toward one in particular and then a strong second. Knowing your typology gives you an important tool for skillfully addressing many of life's challenges. For example, when dealing with a difficult coworker, you might first notice your orientation. Are you judging, comparing, or fixing? Then instead of reacting to the situation from this mind state, you might pause and reflect This moment is like this, or working with this person is like this. Only then would you decide what action or words are appropriate. Many times the appropriate thing is to do nothing. Continually judging a coworker will exhaust you and make you less effective in your work. Comparing yourself to that person can sometimes cause tension and self-loathing. And trying to fix someone who's not available to be fixed, a colleague or boss, is dangerous. Beware of saying to yourself, I'm never going to judge, compare, or fix again. Remember the two wings of the Dharma, wisdom and compassion. It takes both wings for the Dharma to fly. The idea is to meet the moment mindfully. Decide what action, if any, is skillful and to have compassion. Otherwise, others may start to notice the tension that judging, comparing, or fixing can create. They will feel your non-acceptance. It doesn't mean you need to approve of how they are, but you can accept that this is the way this person is. As acceptance grows, so does a sense of well-being. Often in life you cannot control the situation, but you can control your own behavior by knowing your typology and making appropriate adjustments to your reactions. You can hopefully prevent adding more suffering to your life and maybe to the world. You know, there's a prayer that I say um, every morning um, when I sit that goes, grant that I may be given the appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and that my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. I call it my bring it prayer. You know, who who asks for The uh, operative word is appropriate difficulties and sufferings. It's that whole concept of this too, you know, and how do we expand our hearts and our minds to accept how things are and not to be complacent about it, but to be able to recognize what is really here and then how to address it. With myself for a moment. This thought of you're reading to them a lot it could at least be a bedtime story. Wondering, am I connecting with people? Are they bored? Are they interested? Letting my colleagues down. Noticing what's arising, not necessarily believing them, but just noticing. Interesting, that's where we go. I just want to share just a little bit of like, why I go there. At a very young age, probably around like five or six, I I realized for myself that um, I was queer and non-binary, and there was definitely no terms like that in 1969. But I, what I did know was that it was not okay to be who I was. And in a lot of ways, I felt like God had made a big mistake, that, he, that God put me in the wrong body. So on top of like questioning or not understanding my gender identity or my sexual orientation, you know, I was, um, my parents came to this country with me when I was 10 months old and um, experienced a lot of racism and so they told me to assimilate into white culture. It's like, you know, if you're gonna succeed in this country, you need to follow the white people. Don't mess with all these other people. So not only my gender identity or my sexual orientation, it was like my race and ethnicity was not okay either. I remember um, being in eighth grade in my civics class and we filled out these forms to get our social security cards and two weeks later, they all the cards came back, and my civics teacher said, "The reason why Amjad and Marinella, which is my formal first name, didn't get their social security cards is because they're aliens." I ran home and I told my mom that you know I wanted to be naturalized. That's another fucked up word. I didn't want to be an alien. And so what I got very early on in life was that there was something innately wrong with me. And if I wanted to feel any sense of love and acceptance in this world, I had to be anything but myself. I had to be whatever my parents expected to be me to be. I had to be whatever I thought my friends wanted me to be. I had to conform into what society expected of me. So I tried to be like the best like kid ever. You know? In ninth grade, I was voted like funniest and friendliest, even though I'm like painfully shy and introverted. I ex- excelled in academics and was voted most likely to succeed in my senior year because everybody thought I was going to be the doctor. I had this pattern of choosing unavailable people to perpetuate my story that I was unlovable and unacceptable. So this happened for like a good long time. Probably into like my early 30s. What I noticed like in all the failed relationships that I had, you know, that would last like one or two years, was that the common denominator in all those relationships was me. So that's when I decided to sit myself down on a cushion and just take a really good hard look at myself. In Buddhism, um, always, I always found interesting, and I thought I would be like a Zen Buddhist, you know, because I like order and um, structure and discipline but I ended up falling into the lap of Tara Brock, who, if some of you know, is the complete opposite of all that. (laughs) And what I found was that rather than being more rigid and more um, hard on myself, I actually needed to soften. And so in that softening, um, I recognized that, you know, maybe I need to, like, not depend on th- something outside of myself to make me happy? because All that is um, impermanent, it's uncertain, and so, you know, how can I trust myself more? And because of all these failed relationships, I decided, like, I'm just going to join a monastery because they have no problems there. <laughs> and so I was at a dentist's office, and I was, like, going through... Um, the personal ads which were in the paper at the time. And I found this one really compelling ad and I thought, okay, one more fling before the monastery. (laughs) So I answered the ad and met with this person and um, she looked really familiar to me. So I said, you know, do I know you from somewhere? And she's like, I don't think so. And we got to talking and and it ends up that we both meditated. And so I said to her, And she asked me, like, where do you meditate? And said, oh, I meditate with Tara Brach in Bethesda. And she's like, oh, you know, I don't belong to that sangha, but I did go on a New Year's retreat with him about a year and a half ago. And I said, ding, 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 that's where I know her from. She was my Vipassana romance on that New Year's retreat. (laughs) So I didn't say anything because I wanted to make sure she wasn't, you know. (laughs) So I just kind of went through the day and everything really went really well. And... um, and at the end of the date, she said, you know, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, to be quite honest, I actually had a really big crush on you on that retreat. And she said, well, I think that calls for a second date. So we've been together 17 and a half years since. <laughs> and right before I met Wendy, you know, what was really important for me was to work on myself, but I also um, decided that, like, I wasn't just going to settle for anyone. You know, the la- I always say that the breakup that brought me to the Dharma was with a pastry chef. And I said, you know what, I am like done with the crumbs, you know, I want the whole <laughs> fucking loaf. <laughs> so I wanted somebody that was emotionally available. I wanted somebody that was um, working on their stuff. I wanted somebody on a spiritual path. It didn't matter what it was, as long as it wasn't a cult that, you know, <laughs> um, that was, you know, enriching for them. And Wendy was all these things and is all these things. And I remember like two months into the relationship, I turned to her and said, "Um, can you play hard to get? Because I was bored, you know? It's like, oh, this person's available, they're here for me. And and she looked at me like, what? And I said, oh, it's okay, I'll work it out in therapy. But what I found, you know, was that, wow, this, like, and sometimes, even still, 17 and a half years later, I turned to her and I said, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why, why are you with me, you know? And I often, um, I, I call Wendy my Quan yin. I never, you know, imagined that anyone could like love all of who I am—the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, um, she was born on July 1st, so she's a uh, Cancer on the zodiac, and I'm born on July 23rd, so I'm on the cusp of Cancer and Leo. But I claim my Leohood, and she'll say, "You know, when you're nice, you're a Cancer. When you're an asshole, you're a Leo." And um, and I, I, I honor that, <laughs> it's true for me. Um, and like what Vinny was talking about, you know, so beautifully you know, about his relationship, it's like to be able to find someone that can just mirror back to you actually your goodness and to hold you accountable for you know, your flaws and misgivings and, and difficulties, it's the biggest gift. I came out to the world when I was 21 and I, I came out to my parents when I was 38 because my parents are um, pretty, well, were a pretty conservative, Republican, Catholic, Bush-loving, Fox News-watching folks. And um, I often say to my sister, like, if we didn't look so much like them, we're adopted. You know, there's like, how did this happen? And when I finally, like, came out to them, um, the first thing my mother said was, like, we've been waiting 18 years for you to say something. And because of my judgment of my parents, of who I thought they were, um, that you know, these people could never love someone like me, I lost 18 years of a relationship with them. So, you know, in the time since... <clears throat> it's been interesting, you know, my mother passed away uh, three years ago. I was actually here at Spirit Rock when I, I got the news that she was diagnosed with a terminal brain, a terminal brain tumor. It's in the third week of my um, month-long retreat here. And I kept saying that bring it prayer, and that's what they brought. And what I found, you know, when I heard that news was there was this like level of groundedness and peace, actually. And my mother was, um, her prognosis was that she would live four to six months. And so I decided to leave the retreat early and I climbed up the side of the hill there that overlooks the retreat center. And this voice came to my head that said, in this life you will suffer, I mean, you will experience pain, but you will not suffer. And so for me, hearing that news about my mom was the pain. And what was the wake-up call for me in hearing that news was that I had four to six months to heal my relationship with my mother. And I feel really blessed that there was that time My mother being, you know, who she was actually lived longer than that. And it's because I told her that I needed to have a a major surgery um, that I was postponing until after she died. And so she lived beyond the time and I had to schedule this surgery. And I asked my mom, you know, why, like, do you think you lived, like, beyond your, your prognosis? And she said... I'm waiting for you to have the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about my parents is like they never told me that they loved me, all my life. They showed me that they loved me. But that part of me that needed you know, to hear that, what I needed to actually reparent for myself because it wasn't gonna come from them, because it's not who they are. And I used to judge my parents around that inability to be more emotionally available or to be able to say what I wanted them to say. And in the last year of my mom's life, it was just like, you know, I'm just gonna accept her and this is how she is. And I noticed that actually my relationship with her After her death is much deeper than it was when she was alive. All the time. So, you know, being a trans person of color, and especially in spiritual communities, you know, it's um, this whole uh, diversity, inclusion subject in our spiritual communities is fairly young. And because I was so assimilated and unaccepting of my identities as a young person, I internalized a lot of of that. And it was really um, okay for me like, to be the only person of color. I often joke that when I first walked into Tara's class that other than the Buddha sitting next to her, I was the only other person of color in the room. <laughs> and when I started you know asking folks to um, use my pronouns, people were just totally not understanding that. And there was a period of time that I I became very, like, um, angry, you know, and frustrated and upset when people wouldn't get things right, you know. And I would remind myself, you know, La it took you, like, 40 years to accept, you know, yourself as a trans person of color. Like, give these people a break. And how I relate, you know, to a lot of... um, What's going on out there, in terms of the ignorance, is that I give people a lot of space and I hold people accountable. You know, so if someone misgenders me, it's like, okay, you know, ouch, I can acknowledge how I feel about it and I can correct them or I can rely on an ally to correct them. I want to start making these little cards when Wendy and I go out to dinner so that the wait person uh, doesn't misgender me and gets gets Wendy's allergies. And so one side would have they, them, and the other side would have Wendy's food sensitivities. (laughs) (laughs) But it really requires um, a level of wanting to connect and engage no matter what. And what I have found through this practice is that And what I have found in being born in this incarnation of body, for me, and not projecting this on any of my queer, trans, or siblings of color, is that it's really to cultivate the most badass practice of patience, compassion, kindness, and love. And I don't need to rely on anything external to myself to Feel this sense of belonging, you know, that I can actually like claim that for myself. And It may not always feel that way all the time, but otherwise, it, it's just a story, you know. It's just like when the Buddha got enlightened and put his hand on the ground as Mara was throwing, you know, all the shit at him. It's like, you know, with the earth as my witness, you know, I deserve to exist. Like we all deserve to exist. You know, before my mom died, I thought, um, there's no way that I'm going to have top surgery. You know, my parents will never, like, understand that. And it was actually after my mom died that I decided to to do it. And at my mom's memorial service, I decided to... um, wear a suit and tie, which is something I've never done in public and definitely not in public with my parents or um, their friends. And it was really amazing because my father came up to me and said, uh, do you wanna wear one of my ties? He for me. So, ...judgments that I've had and carried around about my parents. And, you know, it's not necessarily true for everybody. But for me, it was just, you know, the more I have accepted and loved and just continued to just be myself, the more I found, like, wow, there is love out there to be had. Gonna end with like one more song so you can remember that for yourself you're insecure don't know what for you'll find your way once you walk through the Dharma door don't need ego to cover up Be in the way that you are is enough everyone else in the hall can see it Everyone else but you Yogi, you light up the world like nobody else The way that you free your mind unders overwhelm And when you smile at your heart It ain't hard to tell We all know Oh-oh That's what makes you beautiful. You saw what we could see, you'll understand it's on you to be truly free. Right now's the time to let go so you can't believe in the snow. Uh-oh, that's what makes you beautiful. That's what makes you beautiful. That's what makes you beautiful. Thank you for your kind, generous attention. Judgments, comparisons are just thoughts. Thoughts that tend to separate us from each other and ourselves. Relentless, shameless and untrue. Gently notice when they arise. Acknowledge them. 34 minutes for walking and come back and chant and sit